Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at uh, class 16 of 32, so we're right smack in the middle of our structured study of jhana. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also right in the middle of uh, this sutta, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. This is the second of three classes on that. Uh, so the subtitle of the Arya Pariyasana Sutta is Of Noble and Ignoble Searches. So this is this, um, just a, this incredibly brilliant sutta where the Buddha lays out how to practice, you, you, that the, the Dhamma practice must be kept pure, it must be kept separate from other things that we might be involved with, and to not attach it to other things or other um, so-called spiritual or religious practices that we might be uh, involved in and enamored with, because it's not one of those things. It's not spiritual, it's not religious, it's simply a, a practical way of living in the world that allows us to remain calm and peaceful no matter what's occurring. And so it, it's important to see it that way and understand that's the, the basic foundation of this particular most important sutta is to keep it pure. And so even though we're practicing meditation and some um, seemingly moral principles, and there are right speech, right action, and right livelihood are moral, but it's way beyond human morality that we apply these things to. And you understand that through Dhamma practice. So... Um, so, jhana meditation is like, it's similar to most visualization practices in that most people think visualization and meditation is the same thing, or some people think contemplation, such as an idea, a deity, or a, a candle, or a, a sunset, that that's meditation. You can call it all that if you want. It's not what we refer to as meditation, just to be clear. That's contemplation. We use meditation for one purpose, for the purpose that the Buddha taught, which is jhana, to deepen concentration. So this 32-class structured study is all about how suttas relate to jhana, and all of our structured studies are that way. And so this one relates to the importance of using your concentration to recognize when you are holding in mind the dhamma and when you've lost it. In other words, when you've lost your mind in relation to the dhamma. And it's just that. So the Buddha teaches this sutta so that we'll use it, so that we'll apply it. And he teaches that if we don't apply it as intended, that we're not going to be practicing the Dhamma. It's just that way. So the, the Dhamma is one of those things that is contrary to a lot of the things in life in that it is black and white. It is one way. Where most of the things that we encounter in life are, um, they're fungible. You know, and most of them are, are, most of the things that occur in this world are adaptable to fit any view that we want. That might not be the right view. Is everybody following me? Because if my view is fabricated, corrupted by my lack of understanding of Four Noble Truths, then I can't help but color this moment with part of that fabrication. And so create an element of untruth in relation to the Dhamma. It doesn't mean that what's occurring isn't occurring. It simply means I don't understand it fully in relation to the Dhamma. Is that clear to everyone? Mm -hmm. Including you, Jane. I'm just calling on you because I can't see if you're, you're shaking your head up and down. I'm shaking my head up and down. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Okay. Um, so you, we're, we're all clear on that. 
Again, I'm emphasizing this point that I emphasize and our other Dhamma teachers emphasize often. In fact, our statement purpose and our Sangha guidelines are really all geared towards just this one thing. To use our jhana practice to deepen concentration so that we can hold in mind the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path as the framework and guidance for our life and in doing so we stay disentangled from the world while being fully immersed in it in an impersonal way. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's what I always wanted, I didn't even realize it. So I'm going to go just back just a little bit. And so this sutta about noble and ignoble searches, um, the Buddha talks about first the foolishness of seeking some kind of understanding within the same situation and environment that is so confusing and vexing and stress-inducing. It doesn't make sense, does it? It didn't make sense for me to spend years and years trying to get to a bottom of a vodka, a, vodka bottle, a vodka bottle as quickly as I could or a bag of dope as quickly as I could because I thought my salvation resided there in the culmination of that. And this is the same kind of foolishness that I think I can find some kind of understanding or peace out in the world that is not designed to provide it. The first noble truth tells me that. If I try to find happiness and satisfaction or salvation or any kind of um, variation on that theme, which human beings all pick one and, and run with it, if I try to do that, if I think I need to do that, I've lost my mind in relation to the Dhamma. Again, notice the qualification. Many people live their entire lives not knowing anything about the Dhamma and some of them, many of them, have at least a, a measure of happiness so it's not to say that this is the only thing you should be doing with your life, but if you want to be a Dharma practitioner and develop the benefits that the Buddha taught us to expect and that we talk about, you'll keep it pure. You'll keep it just like this. So here, just where I stepped off last... Stepped off? I never used that word. Where I stopped. Step off! What are you? <laughs> just where I finished last week was the Buddha's encounter with Alara Kalama. This is towards the end of his six years. Now remember the Buddha has spent these six years, excuse me, studying with great diligence all the so-called spiritual religious ideas that were around northern India with the idea that one of them, or maybe a combination of all of them, would provide what he was looking for, which, remember, his, why he set out to understand the nature of human suffering. If it was possible to understand it, and if we could understand it, and so eliminate individual contributions to dukkha. Because even as going out on that, the Buddha understood the dukkha that was inherent in the world because he saw that for the first time, remember. So he's seeking to understand, not to save others or to save himself. He simply wants to understand what it means to be a human being in relation to all the suffering that he saw. And the reason why is he saw that that's what people got caught up with. That was the main distraction or, or the, 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 the reason for their living. Right? That was why we live. We want to we want to get enough stuff so we're not affected by the by the world. And that's the wrong way to live, isn't it? Because we can't do that. But we can understand first why we do it and then to stop doing it. But we have to look in the right place. Where is that? It's in a common peaceful mind within each and every one of us. There is no salvation out there or in the future. Salvation or the Dhamma can only be experienced and resolved. The culmination of the Dhamma can only be resolved in a present moment. 
And it has to be a present moment that you have brought yourself to. It's up to you. I can't bring yourself to it. The Buddha can't do it. No prayers, no... Uh, a million hours of meditation practice won't get you there. I've talked to many meditators. Meditation alone. They didn't do anything else. And many of them meditate themselves right into deep psychoses. Sometimes they were able to extricate themselves. Sometimes they weren't. Why am I saying that? Because that is a good example of an ignoble search. Now, that's not to say that everybody that meditates incorrectly is going to end up like that. They won't. But as Dharma practitioners, this is what we practice. And it's an easy, gentle, and for the most part, Julia, fun, right? See, I told you. Have fun with it. He has to say that. (laughs) But it is fun. The realization is fun, isn't it? That you're gaining, the understanding you're gaining of yourself, I realize I'm putting you on the spot. That's okay. Is, is in some ways, don't let me put words in your mouth, the greatest fun you've ever had. It's interesting. (laughs) There we go. Good. It's interesting. You're learning about yourself and the world you live in. And you've learned a lot in a short time. So, the Buddha, when he, he, he traveled all around Northern and he was studying with these different people, learning, understanding that it's not out there, that he's not going to find the answers. But so he, he's finally settled on studying with two of the most famous so-called spiritual religious teachers of his time. The first one is Alara Kalama. And his Dhamma resolves in the dimension of nothingness, meaning a fabricated dimension. By the way, the dimension of nothingness is the same as the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. Excuse me. I don't mean to burp in your faces. Um, or the dimension of nothingness or emptiness, which, which almost all of modern Buddhism seeks to, to resolve itself in exactly what the Buddha says, don't do it. Don't go there. Don't go to the dimension of nothingness or emptiness or neither perception or non-perception, or anything else, or even, don't go to the imagination that tomorrow I'm going to be the best meditation teacher, or the best house painter, or the best this and that. Tomorrow. As long as I do some things, I'll be better, and I'll be better, I'll be the better a better person that I can present to the world, and the world will love 100% of the time. Or even when you find yourself there, let it go. Well, yeah, thank you, Rob. Everybody heard what Rob said. When you find yourself in that in the culmination, let it go. Because if you think it is, it's not. But you'll know it. How will you know it? The teachers, the teachings tell us so. You'll recognize that the fourth level of jhana that we experience in every meditation session is now all you're living in. It will become obvious. You will know it. And why is that important? Because you have to know it to experience. You have to know, yeah, I finally made it. I'm a mature human being. Big deal. Because it should be looked at in that way. It should be looked at as the most important thing you've ever done for yourself and absolutely ordinary. Because what's more ordinary than for a human being to finally understand what it means to be a human being? Forget the fact that most people will never. You've done what you're supposed to do, what you're here for. And so you can, you can pat yourself on the back, and you should, but also understand, because it helps keep you here, you've just done what you should. Julia? So... Again, I, I, so I didn't mean to interrupt you. The reason why I said should, I mean in relation to the Buddha's words. Upon his awakening, he said, I have done what should be done has been done. I've reached the end of the path. And so it implies that, yes, there's things that we have to do. It's not just meditation. It's not just being a good person and thinking that 
that um, uh, charity or compassion alone will get us someplace, there's something to do. But we, there's something definitely that we can do. Yes, yes. <laughs> Julia. Is conscious, consciousness perception or no perception? Yeah, thank you for the question. And again, you can, the, the implication that you're going in the right direction is there because you've heard this. And yes, there is perception as, a, as an aspect of concentration, so our consciousness. So consciousness that we're talking about is simply ongoing thinking in our case, in Dhamma practitioner's case, thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So again, it's, and perception is part of that. Now you remember the, the, the uh, you may not remember already, month and a half in, but the Buddha's description of ongoing personal suffering is the five clinging aggregates. Form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications formed out of those perceptions, and then consciousness, excuse me. (coughs) 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 So your question gets right to the heart of wise restraint, doesn't it? It is in this consciousness that I have, in this moment, that I have to resolve. It's your thinking that you've been working with for a month and a half now, developing this ever-deepening understanding of who you are in relation to the world. You're able, um, at times, to practice wise restraint. You recognize when it's needed. That's your consciousness working with what it has, with your thinking, and recognizing in this moment I'm distracted or I'm not. And so to answer your question, yes, perceptions are part of consciousness, but they're not all of consciousness. Perceptions form whatever consciousness you have. Now, that consciousness is either rooted in ignorance that gives rise to a feeling that that gives rise to a a reaction or not. But let's say in the case of a reaction, because you're lacking understanding, and I'm asking you, I'm not going to point out what you've told me when you've practiced this, because I think they're too personal, but, but please think back to some of the issues, including a lunch you had, where you learned what it meant to practice wise restraint. You following me? I understand, but I mean, is like consciousness, nothingness is kind of what I meant. Like not having a per, not having a perception or a no perception. Is that consciousness? No. In fact, we're not looking for the ath- for the absence of consciousness or thinking. Because now, again, it's, it's such an important question. And it implies that you understand where we're going. Without consciousness, without thinking of some sort, now we're talking about a refined consciousness now, but without thinking, how can I concentrate? So we're not talking about the elimination of, con- of consciousness or what people think we should be doing to get to the point of no thinking or what Nagarjuna made a, a, a lifetime on, of, of a Dhamma teacher, of, of think his, his famous catchphrase that I, I tried for years, not years, months, to figure it out until I was wise enough to give it up. Nagarjuna made a, a lifetime meal on think not thinking. In fact, if anybody want to find out what he meant by that, look it up, think not thinking. But don't look too far because you'll twist your head up because I tried. There's no resolution to that type of thinking. But it seems people that would follow someone, let's say Nagarjuna, Naga, which means the snake, and well, I won't get into that whole story. People, there's many people that follow Nagarjuna as their Dhamma teacher and his teachings because it provides such an intricate and deep and nuanced distraction that it, it's so 
powerful that it sounds like you're doing something, but you're just wasting your mind. You're doing what the Buddha said don't do. So to answer your question, what's the difference? Well, the difference is not really in perceptions, but it's in recognizing a fabrication. Because mm-hmm. it is in recognizing a fabrication, such as you described uh, the agitation that, that arised during your lunch that you didn't follow, that's a fabrication arising, meaning there's something difficult. Yeah. You took a breath. You, you resolve the issue of the fabrication in that moment. So in so doing, you didn't allow your previous perception of something leading to something more difficult. The, the feeling gave rise to the perception that gave rise to a fabrication. The fabrication is a solidification of perceptions, let's say, making it concrete, making your perceptions of that person involved now permanent where every encounter is going to be difficult and you overcame that. Do you see that? Do you see the difference now? Following. And, and, and that's exactly what it was. Your perception, your perception was changed. I almost used the word healed, but it wasn't healed. Nothing magical happened. You changed your perception by holding in mind the Dhamma in that moment of contact with that particular person. So perceptions and nothing, perceptions are part of the Dhamma, recognizing them and the quality of them, either perceptions leading towards distraction or towards calm, or the, the, um, the getting to the point where there's, a, there's, there's the lack of choice. You're just present for what's occurring. But you're so right to question it. And so nothingness is not something we're after. We're after profound concentration, which means ongoing thinking that I am in complete control of, which people don't want to hear. You can say that to some people. Oh, you shouldn't control anything. Well, I mean, if people said that to me, and I, even when I was a kid, I remember now sitting here, a school psychiatrist saying, you shouldn't be trying to control your mind. Because I said, I said, I can't control my mind. I wish he had told me, you should. Why wouldn't you teach somebody? You should control your mind, and here's how you do it. Again, from my, make me emperor of the world, every child should learn the Dhamma. Probably a good thing, they don't make me emperor. But, wouldn't the world, wouldn't the world be a bit, we're not teaching salvation, but that's the whole point. Why wouldn't I want to understand this? So I stop getting, stop letting my life be run by my misconstrued perceptions. I perceive, perceive you as hurtful because you hurt me in the past, so you must be hurtful right now. That's following that continued ignoble path that you are already on and established for yourself. All people can be hurtful, or all, all people like that could be hurtful. When we're not allowing for people to change, right? And impermanence to intervene. You had another profound experience of that just yesterday into today, didn't you? So these are all part of the Dhamma. I just pointed that out so you'd be aware of it, and we're both aware of it. So it's a great question. Let me get to the sutta. Um, so he talks to Alara Kalama. Alara Kalama gives us his Dhamma. He asked Alara Kalama, does, is that the culmination? Does it culminate in the, uh, the establishment of the dimension of nothingness? Alara says, yes. The Buddha says, that's not for me. And then he continued his search, and he went to Adaka Ramaputta. Upon arrival, he said to him, friend Udaka, I want to practice your Dhamma and discipline to become your disciple. Udaka replied, you may, you may stay. And he said basically the same thing Alara said, which is kind of a common refrain then and today. This assurance, you've come to the right guy. I'm the one that has all your answers. Udaka said, my dharma is such that an observant person can soon understand and integrate 
my knowledge and realize it for themselves through their own direct knowledge. So again, they're even pointing to what the Buddha says about his Dhamma. It has to be through direct knowledge. So he's still interested in what a Dhaka has to say. And then the Buddha says, actually I should call him Siddhartha because he's not the Buddha then. Siddhartha says, from reciting and repetition, I quickly learned his Dharma. I could affirm, affirm that I knew his Dharma. Notice the words I'm using, Dharma as, referred, as, a, in a, in a, uh, as opposed to Dhamma. One is what, what the Buddha taught, Dhamma, and Dharma is what he didn't teach. I thought that it is not through, I, I thought that it is not through the mere conviction that Udaka Ramaputta declares that I understand and have integrated his Dharma and realized it for myself through direct knowledge, excuse me. Udaka Ramaputta certainly understands and integrates his Dharma so he can understand that I developed it. So he went to Udaka and asked him, what is the culmination of your understanding and integration? He's hoping that it's more than what Alara told him. And Udaka declared that the culmination of his Dharma was in the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, another imaginary realm, just like the imaginary realm of tomorrow I'll be the world's greatest meditation teacher, or any aspect of the imagination that you might live in. It's all the dimension of nothingness. If the Buddha says, get out of there as quickly as you can, come back to reality, how? Through the Eightfold Path, through this path. Then Siddhartha said, Then I thought, not only does Udaka Ramaputta have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. He believes in what he's saying, much like all the teachers that I studied with. I studied with some of the, again, not to name drop, and I won't say their names, but I studied with some of the great, well-known meditation teachers of our time. And I went through just what the Buddha found. I found them disappointing. And actually one asked me to stay on and maybe I'd be a teacher one day. And that was the one I found most disagreeable. But, um, then the Siddhartha continues, I also have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. Then he asked himself the rhetorical question, what if I were to strive to realize for myself this Dharma through direct knowledge? And then he says he went to practice, he went to do it. I quickly developed understanding and fully integrated Udaka Ramaputta's Dharma. Having realized it for myself, the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception through direct knowledge. I then asked Udaka if that was the culmination of his understanding and integration of his, his Dharma. Udaka told me that it was. He then offered me the same thing. He said it would be great if I would join his Dharma, dharma on the same high seat as he was, and start teaching. And the Buddha said, um, let me get to that point, he said that I found this Dharma to be unsatisfactory, and so I left Udaka Ramaputta and continued the noble search. It wasn't until I gave myself that license to put behind all the teachers and all the, all the teachings that I had learned and said, this isn't for me, that my mind was now getting to the point where I could start learning something different. Because up until that point, I was the world's most foremost authority on everything, and including Buddhism, and that the only thing I could learn was more to add to my knowledge. And that was, that was my biggest crutch. What was I seeking? I had the idea that I knew what Buddhism was, but it was also something that would lead to a magical quality of mind that I would attain once I awakened. And that's what kept me going. Even though I learned... I honestly learned nothing 
I met some wonderful people and made some great friends. But as far as learning something useful, it was a complete waste of time. A complete waste of time. And people say to me, well, you had to go through that, and it was a wonderful journey. And I say as loud as I can, but I won't say it here, BS. I didn't have to. And you people are proof of it. Because you don't have... Nobody has to go through the same thing to do what another human being did, right? That would, that's ridiculous to even think it, except many people apply that to the spiritual path. And they think that every, everything you ever experience is part of that path. It's not. This is my path. And this is the path that I'm practicing. I don't look at other paths. The only reason I read even other um, suttas is for restoration purposes only. I know that I found it. Through my own conviction, I found it. The Buddha then says, seeking the unexcelled release, the unexcelled peace arising from skillful understanding, I wandered through the... I'm sorry, I left out the most important line. I found this dharma unsatisfactory and so I left Udaka Ramaputta and continued the noble search. Seeking the unexcelled peace arising from skillful understanding, I, I wandered through the Magadan country and arrived through Uruvela. This place was delightful with inspiring forests, a clear flowing river with shallow banks, and nearby villages for alms. This seemed just right for developing jhana, meaning he had found his secluded place. He's now going to sit in jhana and apply everything that he's learned now and see if he can make sense of it. Friends, while practicing jhana, while in the same situation that we all are in, while being subject to birth, still living this human life, he hasn't, he hasn't done what everybody else had, has t- said he must do to awaken. He hasn't left his body. In fact, he doesn't have any kind of knowledge that could be seen as superhuman or supernatural. And that's what he realized. Friends, while being subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair while being subject to the three defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, in that situation, the same situation that we are all in right now, he then says, through his Dhamma, he realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding of views rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And we know because we've taken the Triple Refuge that he told the truth, that he told the truth in the Second Refuge, that he left his Dhamma for us, and he was true in the third refuge to go and find a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. And we, we have it, and so he was true about that. Those are three additional noble truths that I just established. <laughs> knowledge, and then he says, knowledge and vision arose within me. This is so important in relation to how modern Buddhism is, is portrayed, that Siddhartha was just and they tried to, to both diminish what he accomplished and then um, uh, exaggerate his importance beyond the human realm. So, he says, in me, a vision arose in, within me, inside the same environment that we're all confused about, within this human mind and human body. Unprovoked is my release meaning there's not a shred of ignorance left within him. That's what he means. And again, he wouldn't teach this if other people couldn't get to that same point. Then he says, this is the last birth. He's not talking about rebirth. He's not talking about 
well, now that I've done this, I won't have to come back here. But he also never says that you won't. He just discounts it completely because it's a fabrication whether we do or not. Many people see rebirth as, excuse me, rebirth as the vehicle for working out karma. And so there's some belief that if you come back as an animal, it's probably because you might have killed that animal or something. Or that your misdeeds relate to that animal, meaning, well, you might have been uh, angry and aggressive, so you're going to come back as a wolf one day, and a wolf with one leg because of you chewed something. All this is nonsense. Karma doesn't relate to that. Karma is, karma is a present moment unfolding of past intentional acts, moderated, what we hold in mind, moderated by the present level of consciousness, what we hold in mind, present level of mindfulness. All of that points to this, what we're holding in mind. And if what I'm holding in mind is not provoked by ignorance, it won't lead to a fabricated perception, and so no agitation. I will have gained full control of my mind, and as the Buddha says, at some point, never to lose it again. Why? Because we've developed jhana to that point, that he did, and that he said we can all do it. Knowledge and vision arose in me, unprovoked is my release. This is the last birth. There is now no further becoming what? That, that's the end of the sentence, but the implication is, in the Dhamma, what? What are we trying to do? Understand and end our ignorance. There is now no further becoming ignorant. Now what can I do? Now, and you hear me say this often, each human moment holds the potential to either continue to become further ignorant, as the Buddha points out here, or to continue to become awakened. Hence the name, Becoming Awakened. That's the name of the book, Becoming Buddha, Becoming Awakened. That is the choice we have in each and every moment. And it's not unrealistic. It might sound grand to some, I'm going to become Buddha, but all, it, all that it means that I've taken control of my mind and my life to the extent that I can gain full human maturity. And this is how to do it. And some people might say, well, again, why, didn't we, why, didn't, why weren't we taught this? We are being taught this. So it's a foolish question to ask, isn't it? It's a foolish question for me to ask, why did I spend 15 years in Buddhism and never taught this? I hate all those people, and they're all so-and-sos, and I just recognize it as a waste of time. It was also a waste of time, all those, all those nights I fell asleep in the bottom of a bottle of vodka. That doesn't mean that I discount my life because of it. It did not lead to my understanding, that's all. I'm sorry, David. It also implies that you're done. Yes. Versus each moment's discrete, and each moment is a chance to ensure that your karma the next moment is based on understanding. Yes. So therefore, it's never done. And John is the vehicle to deepen absorption. I'm jumping out of my chair because... I wish I said that. You're saying it perfectly. And why is it never done? Because this relates directly to what you told Larry on retreat and that very powerful revelation. Listen, Larry was wondering, I can't remember the exact scenario, but then why he might hear the Dhamma different from me later, and your answer was? Because there's an impermanence in each moment that you hear... Dhamma, you're a different person. And the teacher is different. The teacher is different, 
the air is different, the sangha is different, the opportunity to hear it differently is different. Yeah. You are here, and I'll hear it differently. If Brett didn't come, I would hear it differently. Yeah. So therefore, it's discreet, and it's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. yeah. Neil, I'm sorry. Neil, no, I'm not quiet. Did I interrupt you? Did no. the phone call interrupt you? No. I, I think you were. I don't think you were finished though, because no, no, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a. It teaches you that each moment is discrete, and each moment should be dealt with with the mindfulness that you're developing. Yes. And each and every moment, each and every opportunity, even if you you, you find yourself having lunch with that same person, and the agitation arises again. It's not that you fail, it's just not another opportunity to practice the Dharma. Do you understand what So each and every moment, we are different. If we're practicing, well, even if we're not practicing Dharma, we're going to be different. And so the Dharma becomes ever more real and applicable the more we're here at class and the more we're practicing. Like Dharma, like Ram practiced diligently. He's come to more Dharma classes than anybody. Now that Ram has been coming, they're that would be in that span of time it would be about equal but the reason why I'm pointing out Ram is he didn't buy it at first and he fought it tooth and nail a lot of it was to and I'm, you can, if I'm putting words in your mouth please say so and a lot of it was just reconciling what he wanted to hold in mind that he could no longer because it was challenged by the Dhamma is that right portraying that accurately yeah. and so that is normal practice I went through it everybody goes through it Julie is describing it wonderfully now. And so we're always different. The Dhamma is always applicable. That's the, the name of truth. Four noble truths means no matter how different we are, no matter how much we grow, even post-awakening, there's always the Dhamma. There's always this moment that is fresh. And why wouldn't I want to carry my full human maturity now from one moment to the next? But now I know how to do it and how to never lose it again. Isn't it also a reflection going back to what you were saying about like knowledge, gaining knowledge versus knowing, right? Yes. So when we have early on in our practice, we have an experience of whether it's wise or strain or whatever it is, we have some knowing there. Yep. And the knowing builds on the knowing. Yeah. So that your 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 insight that you might have at a retreat feeling like you're hearing something for the first time is because your knowing grew. Yes, yes, yes. Since the last time. And, it's and that happens every time, doesn't it? It's yeah. It's applicable. Yeah, so, and there's and awareness builds, about that, it. That uh, automatically builds on itself. Yeah, it's a secret. That's just what you're describing. Yeah. You're, you're, what you know keeps growing, and and that, that, that thing of knowing is this beautiful jewel known as wisdom, that just keeps expanding. And so your understanding of, of what it means to be a human being just continues to grow because that's what it means to be a human being. And again, once you... Some people that think that, okay, once you're awakened, okay, now you're just, you're just a lump. What would you do? Well, you would. I, I can tell you right now, I do more in my life than I've ever done, and most of it is like this. <laughs> really. I, I mean, I'm serious. And my life has never been more full than when I learned to, to just, I almost curse. I never curse. 
My life has never been more full than when I learned to just sit down for a while and not have anything else to do. I told you that too, Laura. Laura's doing it very well. We should all have a lot of unscheduled time. Most people don't have any. And, and most of my life is unscheduled, except for uh, Tuesday, Saturday, Thursday, and some people that I'm going to talk to about. Usually it's about the Dhamma, or, you know, I'm fortunate to still talk about people in recovery. You know, I'm very fortunate. But that's my life. And each and every moment is meaningful. I want to hear what Ilya has to say, but I got a feeling your life is a lot like that anyway. But let me <laughs> let me continue. Um, unprovoked is my release. This is the last birth. There is now no further becoming. We've done it. Does anybody think you can't do it? Like as the Buddha describes, of course not. Then I had the thought: this dharma that I have I have attained is deep. It's hard to see and it's hard to realize. This dharma is peaceful. It's refined. And it's beyond mere conjecture. That's the problem. We can't just conceptualize ourselves and say, ah, that sounds right. Yeah, I want to go to nothingness. I want to get to that dimension of neither perception nor non-perception because I like Udaka Ramaputta. He's big and tall. He's got a wonderful beard and big blue eyes. I want to get there with him. Until you realize, no, that's just a fabrication. I want to awaken and find out what it is to be a human being. I don't want to get into the dimension of nothingness. I want to get into the dimension of everything. Because that's what human life is. And that's what David just described. Life doesn't become stagnant because you're awakened. It's really the first time that you can really grasp at everything. Safely. Because you won't cling to anything. That's abundance, my friend. It's like nothingness... Like wanting to, want, clinging to nothingness is just a way of escaping being a human. Into nothingness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a call. I got to tell this because it's important. I got a call one time. I'll tell this quickly as possible. From guy, as soon as he got on the phone, he was. You could see how enamored he was with his meditation practice. He said, "I've been married, meditating for over an hour a day, twice a day, for many, many years, and I feel like my life has got is I have nothing in my life." And then when I said, I got a beautiful house he lived in, um, where was that? I can't remember the name. Newtown. Newtown, which is really you know, one of the wealthiest places in the country. I got a beautiful house, three kids, beautiful wife, all the cars. I got every beautiful job. I got everything I could ever want. I've been meditating all this time. Why do I feel like I have nothing? And I knew immediately. Not that I'm brilliant, because I know that saying, because I meditated in it. And I knew what he was going to say. I said, describe your practice. And I knew what he, he said. Um, I've been practicing Zen all this time. And most Zen practices culminate in the dimension of nothingness or emptiness. It's, it's just their practice. Not right or wrong, but most of it culminates that way, which is something the Buddha said don't do. And so I got a call one time from this person who was really enamored, couldn't figure out why they feel like they got nothing when they have everything. And as soon as he said it, you know, I said, say it again. And he said, I've been meditating all these years. I can't remember. You might remember, but it was a lot. It was like 18 or 30 or something. Um, and he said, I feel like I got nothing. And I could hear the light go off in his head. Bingo. And he said, wow. He says, for all these years I've been focusing on nothingness and I feel like I've got nothing. And he did say, I'll see you at your next class and I never saw him again. But that's the point. That if what we focus on, we're going to get. I used to have a teacher that said that a lot. What you focus on, expand. Focus on getting to the dimension of nothingness. And you'll create it in your life. Or you'll wonder why you can't. At will. But when you're focused on just calm and understanding in this moment, 
Everybody can understand this moment, doesn't it? It just takes a little maturity. It takes a little bit of lessening eye-making. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying, making it sound almost too easy, but it, it, it is just that. That's the, that's the culmination. Just what you're talking about, just what you're pointing to. So like I told you last night, it's coming. <laughs> Take your time. This Dhamma is peaceful, refined, and beyond mere conjecture. This Dhamma is subtle and is to be directly experienced by who? And there's a qualification here, by the wise. What does the Buddha mean? It doesn't mean just by people that have proved that they're wise. It means people have the wisdom to do just this, to practice the Dhamma by itself, keep it pure, and experienced by the wise. Here's the problem that the Buddha points out from 2,600 years ago, and it just, just think about how remarkably well he's describing human life 2,600 years later and every day since then. But the world delights in attachment. It is excited by attachment and is devoted to that attachment and it worships that attachment. What is the newest, uh, I'm talking about 25 years, the newest things that people have attached themselves that they worship? Mindfulness. And again, I'm not putting down mindfulness, just making the point. Modern mindfulness practices have nothing to do than what the Buddha uses the word. It's just the same word. So I use the word refined mindfulness to point out that means simply holding in mind the Eightfold Path as your way of living in the world. That's refined mindfulness. The world is delighted by attachment, is devoted to attachment, and worships attachment. For a world delighting in attachment, excited by attachment, devoted to attachment, and worshiping attachment, conditioned towards self-identification from dependence on ignorance, this Dhamma is hard to see. He describes it right there. Because you're caught up in it, in your own ignorance, that it's a component of ignorance to ignore its own ignorance. In other words, if we are ignorant of Four Noble Truths that we now accept as Dhamma practitioners, I also know that my mind is conditioned towards ignoring that. And how does that manifest? How will I know when I'm ignoring ignorance? When I want something to be different in this moment. When I want somebody I'm having lunch with, or somebody who just got elected, or some natural catastrophe, anything it is that I need to be different in the moment, no matter how altruistic it might seem, I have to understand, in relation to the Dhamma, I've lost my mind. And I remind myself, I establish that refuge that I have within me, that I've established on my cushion and now off my cushion. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Somebody just read off the lottery numbers and they're my numbers all these years. Take a breath and remind yourself, this is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Because if you can do that, you might not lose your mind like many people do when they win the lottery. Most, many, not most, many, many people, it's interesting, blow it all within a year. It's, I mean, you just do an internet search on it. And it's really unfortunate, but it points to greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. These poor souls, nobody ever taught them what it was like to be full of greed. And they couldn't wait to spend it all so they could get back to that familiar mind of worrying. Really, I mean, I think I, that's the only thing that I can think of that makes sense to this mind. You couldn't wait to get back to that familiar state of stress. And that's the biggest problem. That's the biggest problem we have in establishing a meditation practice at first. It's just so damn hard to sit here for a half an hour or 20 minutes. That's why we don't in the beginning. We start for two or three or five minutes. 
The awakened state is hard to realize, but it is just this. It's the resolution of all fabrications. Remember from dependent origination that we studied about four or five classes ago. From fabrications to 12 observable causative links comes all manner of stress and suffering. So if we can understand and interrupt that process, then we end the causation of our, our stress and suffering, don't we? So how do we go from cessation of from ignorance of four noble truths to creating this fabrication? Now let me listen, read that again. The awakened state is the resolution of all fabrications. What are fabrications? How do they manifest in my life? As fabricated views of self. They always manifest as stress in one form or another. How do I know stress? It's either greed or aversion, which is just another greed on the, the other. That's what I'm trying to say, Mary. The other side of the, the, other side of the same coin of greed. Greed and aversion are the same thing. It's wanting something. And aversion is I want what's occurring now to not, or I want less of what's occurring. It's all part of greed, and that's rooted in deluded thinking, meaning thinking that is, that is lacking understanding of four noble truths. So, awakening is obviously developing a way, which we have, of recognizing and abandoning fabrications as they occur. Now remember that. I can't let go of a fabrication from yesterday, even though I might remember what something was like, an argument, or I didn't win the lottery, and I certainly can't. I can't change a fabrication in any way for tomorrow or the next moment, right? I mean, any any almost mature human being would accept that, even though people that worry would uh, belie that truth, because that's what worry is—a projection on the future, isn't it? You're trying to control something that can't be controlled, and so we recognize that, and we recognize through Dharma practice and useful insight, true vipassana. That it's simply foolish. It's not something that I want to do as a Dharma practitioner. Everybody else in the world can do it. And it's fine if they do so. It's not that they have to do something different. If the world wants to live in worry and conjecture and attachment and clinging, that's fine. And I now understand why people do it. I don't have to think that they should be different because I understand it. How do I understand you? Because I understand myself. How can I understand you? What's the only way that I can understand another human being? Certainly not through books. I can go through. I can go through every course in psychology and get a doctorate in psychiatry, but way beyond that, and learn how to prescribe meds to people that have mental illnesses. And I still don't know what it means to be a human being, does it? It doesn't. All the knowledge in the world doesn't give you understanding or knowledge of this moment. Now, some people might develop it outside of the Dhamma. Good for them. But I've yet to meet anybody, and most of the people that come to class have it. And so we can accept the fact that we have it. There is at least a little something that missing. Maybe would they just like listening to this crazy old bald guy in Princeton. I don't think it's that, but maybe. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions. Think of the, we talk about liberation. Now the Buddha is not saying get rid of everything you own. He just says relinquishment of all acquisitions. What is he talking about? Nowhere does he say you shouldn't own things. You know where does he say if you own a zillion dollars, you have to get rid of it. He just says relinquishment, relinquish the attachment to it. So you can have the biggest house and the biggest pile of gold. Just stop identifying with it. And I'll ask this question if you are. Has it been fun? I mean, we have a good example of someone who doesn't have any. I don't want to put it, point it out. But there's a lot of examples in the world of, of zillionaires that are just miserable. 
And it's, usually we think, what's the matter with that person? Why aren't they happy? They have everything. Well, they don't have everything. They can't understand why the hell they're so lucky to have all this money and nobody else does. And that makes them crazy because they can't understand it. They wish they could. And so some of them give a lot of it away. Some of them even, even have given so much away that they've impacted our society for good or for, or for worse. That's, an, that's, a, that's a, an argument that I sometimes make with myself. And so where does, that, where does that leave you? And these people are still complaining about how the world is. In fact, they're doing things that because of, because of the way they think that the world should be different are doing things that, for my brilliance, seems to be manipulating the, the world into more suffering. That's, again, that's neither here nor there. You should expect it in a mind that is rooted in ignorance, that they would continue with creating those scenarios. But it's... It's really interesting to see it in people that are that can have such a profoundly or at least positive or negative yeah. effect. Or at least be ineffective. Yeah, we, you would hope that they would be, but most people that have that kind of power are effective. But again, that's just dukkha. I look out in the world. What did the Buddha say? I looked out in the world. If he woke up today, he would look out at the world and say exactly the same thing. I looked out in the world, and the world was a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fires of passion rooted in eye-making itself rooted in ignorance. He would say exactly the same things, and so would we as Dharma practitioners, wouldn't we? The world is aflame. Those people that are acting out of ignorance, even if they're the very wealthy ones that to me seem to be manipulating things in a bad way, I don't lose my mind over it. I don't, in fact, I don't even think I should try to send them an email to set them straight. I understand it, and I take Not a breath. Not that you've ever thought about that, just saying. <laughs> Observationally. What? How can you talk about me that way? Don't you know who I am? I've taught 2,000 meditation classes. And again, do you know how ridiculous it would be for someone to act like that? And yet, I might have. I mean, I, and literally, I might have a few weeks ago. <laughs> because I continue to take things personally. Again, until just a few weeks ago. The time, and again, the time isn't important. And I hold out the possibility that in the next moment, I might take something personal. And I tell myself when I have that thought, I can't wait. Because I just love to see what I do with it. Because up until now, in the last few minutes, throughout today, I've had pretty good control of my mind. That's a lot. And that's enough for me. It really is. If I can look back on today and say, yeah, I had a calm and peaceful mind. And I really don't have to go into yesterday, even if yesterday was just like today, which I think it was, but I don't have to think about that. And I don't have to sit here saying, boy, I hope the Buddha likes me tomorrow too. <laughs> and really, it's, it's, it's foolish. It's silly to think like that, isn't it? And it's, we should laugh at that. We should giggle at that foolishness. And yet... Most human beings think that way in one way or other, that Ten Command, whatever it might be, I'll get merit from somebody who's watching me or some system, and I'll be good to go at some point. God, what a waste of this moment. Forget about a waste of life, but we don't have to do it. We can be fully immersed in our life as our life occurs, provided that we don't take anything personally. But the world delights in attachment is excited by de- attachment is devoted to attachment and worships attachment. For a world deli- delighting in attachment, excited by attachment, devoted by attachment, worshiping attachment, conditioned towards self-identification from dependence on ignorance, this dharma is hard to see, hence practice. Again, I read that twice. 
it takes more than just the idea. Yeah, he makes sense. Let me go meditate. Let me be a nicer person. That's the person that the Buddha is saying, wait a minute. Remember, it's hard to see. He's just saying it takes practice. And how do we practice? Right here in Dhamma class. And, but we first practice on our cushion twice a day. We start studying the Dhamma as we are all doing. And we come to class when we can. If you want to be like Ram and David and as wonderful as me, you'll come to at least two classes a week, maybe three. You know, you'll come to as many classes as you can. Everybody's schedule is different. We all are very busy. Don't ever judge yourself harshly if you don't come to class. But recognize the benefit of coming. It's up to you. And don't do it because you think you're going to keep me happy. Or that I won't mention it when you come back after a few weeks and I say, it's nice to see you again. I mind. But that's just to encourage you to be here. This practice is, should be and is self-encouraging. So the more you can meditate, the more you can listen to our talks. Do we have five, six, seven teachers soon? Um, and the more you practice, the more you consider what you're learning and apply it when you feel you're getting agitated or losing your mind. That's practice. That's when you do it. That's Dhamma practice. And you will achieve this state of calm and peace and understanding. Never to lose it again. The resolution, I said that, resolute, the, the ending of craving, completely. Remember, think about that. Not having any desire for anything. Never to lose my mind again. And some people say, well, what will motivate me then? What will get me out of the house in the morning? Why would I go to work? Because everything you do will have incredible meaning. And even if it's a, a job that you might have been doing for years, and it's just pure drudgery, your awakened state will either give you the license to leave or the license to appreciate what you have. Wouldn't that be remarkable? And again, who wouldn't want this? And the Buddha guarantees it. And so do I. No money-back guarantees, though. <laughs> the ending of craving, the development of dispassion. It happens. It's not something we have to do. We might be, how the hell can I end, ever end eye-making? What's going to happen to me? It just happens as, a practice, as the practice continues. And it might even seem a little bit painful along the way. Like you're, you're recognizing, you're clinging to those views. Take another breath. You might find that you're losing it at work day after day. You can't just help running into the bathroom and screaming. Again, but you're reminding to take a breath. And pretty soon, you won't have to go into the bathroom. And you might find that you just, you just yelled at your boss and you lost your job and the end, the world is coming to an end, you're going to starve and die. And what do you do? What do you do, Julia, when that happens? When the worst thing that could possibly happen, what do you do? You're full of eye-making. Everything's coming down on you and just you. Mm. I'm putting you in a tough spot. Please excuse me mm -hmm. for doing so. Take a breath. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You're good to go. I was willing to be your lifeline if you need you, Yeah, I, I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> I was you getting can, ready to... Yeah, you can go to a lifeline here. I forgot to say that. So, do you think you can do that when it happens? Sometimes. Do you think you can eventually do it all the time? Do you think you can work up to that? Dharma practice. And again, the time is up to you. It really is. And the time doesn't matter, does it? Because it's all Dharma. It's all meaningful now. Each and every moment of your life, whether you're losing it or not, is meaningful because you'll be able to come back to it. It happens very... It happens slowly. What does it say? Subtly. Subtly. Is that a word? 
-hmm. It's very subtle what we're looking at. But you've also seen and experienced the gross aspects of it, which we have to see, again, the grosser aspects of our behavior are what we see first, right? That's what the word implies. We're going, and by the way, that behavior that you recognize and didn't follow, that's your gross behavior. It's not that gross, is it? It's just human behavior human. that we find out. But the more grosser aspects of our individual behavior will reveal themselves at first. But that just means so that we can recognize them, abandon that as you did, and get to these more subtle levels, which might resolve in, a, in an unpleasant thought about that person, whether they've, now that they're not there, it might be at night or something, you know, anyway, any time that they're not there, that's an example of where you can do it now. The person isn't here, but it's just an unpleasant thought. That's Dharma practice. And it's always that. No matter what's occurring, it's always that. It's always in this moment. The ending of craving, the development of this passion, the development of cessation. Cessation of what? Of following one ignorant thought after another. That's awakening. The cessation of that and the development of unbinding. And then he says, if I were to teach the Dhamma and others would not understand me, that would be tiresome for me, troublesome for me. So he, the Buddha is considering, why should I teach something that I've just that I've just told myself is so difficult to realize, and that very few people, only the wise, would have it. And again, he's thinking he's going through this twenty six hundred years ago, but it's still relevant today, isn't it? Isn't it? Then he says, just then, this realization never known before occurred to me. I'll dismiss teaching to which. Only with great difficulty I attain. This Dhamma may not easily be realized by those overcome by greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. So he's thinking, how do I pierce that veil of ignorance? This Dhamma is difficult to understand, subtle, deep, contrary to common belief. Those delighting in passion, their minds obscured in darkness, will not understand. So we already understand there's going to be plenty out in the world that aren't going to get it. Then, an image came to him. Now we understand that these... Um, uh, these references to non-physical mind states and imaginary mind states are metaphor for for the higher states of the Buddha's mind, the, the, the higher levels of understanding. So then Brahma Sahampati became aware of my thoughts, meaning in his own higher thinking or his own now awakened state or awakening state, awakened state at this point, he's having these realizations. The world is lost, it's destroyed. The Arahant, referring to himself, the rightly self-awakened one, is inclined to dwelling in ease and not teaching the Dhamma. Or as he's seeing it in that metaphor, his Dhamma. You know, his, this, this image is speaking with him. And so he's decided, I finally, after all these years, I got it. I'm calm, I'm at peace. I understand. I can tell it in my own mind. Why would I want to leave? And it answers David's question, David's question whether Siddhartha understood it because there might be those with a little dust in their eyes, and it'll give his life meaning. Brahma-samanpati left his realm and came to me. He came into the physical. The Buddha's describing, now this, this thought is coalescing in his mind. He's gaining an understanding. He's describing human thought process. First there's a thought, and then we can understand it. It's just brilliant. He left his realm and he came to me. He, he knelt down on his right knee and bowed and said to me, the Buddha's, that, that's reference to being respectful, what is he saying? The Buddha is now respecting this mind that used to be so troublesome to him. He's realizing, yes, this mind is something I can trust. It's telling me something. Rightly self-awakened one, please teach your Dhamma, please teach your Dhamma. 
Now he's getting this understanding because there's those with just a little speck of dust in their eyes. They are truly suffering because they will not hear your Dhamma. There are those that are able to understand your Dhamma. And then he continued, or the Buddha's own mind, in the past there appeared among the Amagadans impure Dhamma devised by the ignorant. He's talking about all those teachers he studied with and respects. Teach your Dhamma to the, to the end to end the pain of birth, sickness, aging, death. Teach your Dhamma to end sorrow, regret, distress, pain, distress, despair, and, the, and greed, aversion, and delusion. Teach your Dhamma so they can also realize the unborn, the unexcelled release of the yoke of unbinding from views ignorant of four noble truths. And then he said, just as one speaking on a high, standing on a high peak, mind see people below you. Now he's talking about himself and his own quality of mind. The wise one with profound vision must take your place in the palace of the Dhamma. I think, I mean, it, it, it still brings tears to my eyes thinking about this brilliant man. And he knows he's got everything he ever wanted. And he could take that mind and go back to the palace, remember, and enjoy all of that too. Free from suffering, look on those suffering oppressed with birth and aging. Then he had this thought to himself, you have conquered ignorance. Be a great teacher and wander without entanglements. He knows that he can. It won't be a vexation to him. It won't be hard for him. Teacher Dhamma, there will be those who will understand. And then he says to himself, just going through that rhetorical mind state, mindful of his plea, Sahampati's plea, and out of compassion for all beings. Again, to me, it almost brings me to tears. Because his compassion is so great, it's working now, isn't it? That's compassion, folks. That's a true bodhisattva, now married with wisdom. And he's still finding those with just a speck of dust in his eyes. It's just incredible to me. Mindful of Sahampati's plea and out of compassion for all beings, now from my awakened state, He's capable of doing this. He's not, he's not going out of some, some fabrication to save the whole world. He's not going out on a, a crusade or a, or a modern jihad. He's going to go find a few that have a speck of dust in their eyes. That's quite different than a salvific view, isn't it? It's a view rooted in understanding. Mindful of his plea and out of compassion for all beings from that awakened state, I looked out onto the world. I saw beings with just a little dust in their eyes and beings with much. I saw uncluttered beings and dull beings. I saw beings with good qualities and beings with bad qualities. It means he's just looking out in the world. He's understanding dukkha. I looked out into the world and I saw beings hardened in their views, disgraced, in danger. Is there any difference today? No. And there's still people that live just like he's describing. Hardened in their views. Disgrace and in danger. I looked out into the world and I thought those would be easy to teach. I, I saw those who would be easy to teach my understanding, my right view. It is as if a pond were permeated with red, white, and blue lotus, born and growing, immersed in the water. They flourish, permeated with cool water from their root to the tip, never standing above the surface. 
which can also be a metaphor for never gaining much in life. He was like that. He was, wasn't gaining much in life. Even so, some might rise up and emerge from this murky water, this, this difficult life that is prone to stress and suffering, prone to confusion. Seeing thus, I decided to teach my Dhamma to open to the world the path to cessation. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear could come forth in conviction. What does he mean? Not in faith. Everything up to that point was based in faith. Everything in our world today is based in faith. Meaning as far as Buddhism or most religions. What's the difference between faith and conviction? It has to do with the triple refuge. I'm not doing this because of faith. And none of you are doing it because of faith. You might have gotten here because of faith, but very quickly because of the way we teach and practice. And hold our sangha, you realize this isn't faith, faith-based. There's actually some path that we can do that is um, verifiable every step of the way, and even the culmination is verifiable as we've seen here. The difference is, is that in conviction, it's, it's rooted in experience. Well, it's rooted, yes, it's rooted in initial experience and ongoing experience, but very quickly when you come here, you lose your faith and you gain conviction, at least if it's the conviction that he said, I need to come, keep coming, I need to med- you know, meditate for twice a day, come to class, and keep learning the Dhamma, and very quickly, most people that do that have the experience of Julia, and all of you have experience, and you keep coming. That's conviction. You come here because you don't think that just coming is going to give you something. You come here because every time you've come here, you've learned something. Or at least you've, you've gained some, even if it was just a pleasant two hours. <laughs> Those lacking the eyes to see or ears to hear, the pure Dhamma, I would not teach my refinement. Qualify that. Those lacking the eyes to see or the ears to hear, the pure Dhamma, I would not teach my refined Dhamma. That's an important line to all of us, including us teachers. Because he's also saying it's not his job or our job to convince anybody of this. He's saying if it's difficult, stop. Because there's plenty of people or no, I mean, the Buddha, if the Buddha didn't find anybody, he'd be okay. He would have lived his life. And if we don't find anybody to teach, meaning if, if everybody, if every one of you left and I was left just by myself, okay, that's what happened. But it's not likely what's happened because we've done something that I don't think has happened in quite a long time. We've reestablished a well-informed and well-focused saga. Why do I say that? Because we've had a, we have enough experience to know that we've had it. Um, there's enough of you to say, yeah, this is what it feels like. I've done this, um, and it's just that way. Um, and then we're going to finish. I would teach the Buddha's words. I would teach the pure Dhamma tirelessly. Everybody notice how I haven't missed a class? And <laughs> no, I mean I, I'm just kidding. I, I teach it because it's so fulfilling. I, I, I don't like missing a class even when you other teachers are yeah, teaching. They had to break your leg to stop you come, come. They did. They had to. They <laughs> broke a hip. Um, the Buddhist concludes by saying, I will teach the pure Dhamma tirelessly and untroubled. So it's true. It's another good example. If you're trying to teach, just share with a friend of yours what you've learned and you're having difficulty by just simply describing it, stop. You don't have, you don't have to get it. Right. You know? And if you, if you get to that point where you feel like you're trying to convince somebody, it's usually a good idea to stop trying to push the Dhamma anyway. But we're all living examples of it, like the Buddha was. The Buddha was during his time. Um, I would teach the pure Dhamma tirelessly and untroubled at that point. 
the Buddha's mind cleared. You could say that the the uh, the uh, the engagement with his higher mind cleared, and he awakened. I mean, he he decided to go forth. That's the end of part two. We'll finish this part. We'll finish part three on Saturday. So thank you for listening. It's been a long class, um, so I'm going to ask you to keep your comments uh, brief. But first, does anybody feel like you have something that you have to talk about? And other than that, we'll just go around but keep it brief. Does anybody have something that is, we used to say in the rooms, a burning desire? No? Okay. Um, Jane, how are you? I'm fine. I feel very fortunate that the Buddha did his noble search and that you took his teachings and put them in a format that someone as simple as, you know, in a format that I could understand. So I don't have to do any legwork and I can just work on developing my practice so I can live in each moment. So thank you. Thank you, Jay. That that was a a, a great description. Hello, Brian. Hello. Um, The, um, the commentary around not not needing to develop any further knowledge per se, but switching your mode to wisdom um, is a subtle refinement of within the practice, I think. And then there's there's something there around not having to convince people, and I've I've taken that into my professional life, um, where I I don't have to. I don't have to dictate or mandate an outcome. That's not my role. I'm, I'm, I'm there yeah. to present information factually as possible and let people come to their own conclusions. Yeah. And I'm finding that that is a, that's made me more successful, I guess, professionally yeah. speaking. So, um, thank you for the teaching. Yeah. John. Thank you, Brian. And it keeps you, it keeps you out of arguments, doesn't it? You know, sure it's, does. This is what's occurring. <laughs> Hello, Brett. Hey, John. Um, Good to be here. Thank you for your teaching. Um, <clears throat> I got a lot out of it. Uh, you had to, about the conviction and uh, faith um, part of it, and um, it just <clears throat> just stick to the practice and practice the eightfold path and meditation and yeah. keep coming. And, uh, thank you. It's just like that. Thank you. Hello, Ilya. <laughs> Good to see you tonight. Um, I don't really have anything to say about tonight. I'd love it when I leave him speechless. So. I'm speechless. I'm, I'm glad you're here, Ilya. Thank you. Same here. Um, Hello, speechless, Lord. Speechless, taking it all in. Wow. Glad to be here. That's I mean, these past several teachings have been great. I mean, I've been looking over my, my old notes and everything. And What about before then? They were no good? Oh, yeah. She's I'm building sorry. on her nose. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love being sure. <laughs> what Mary was saying. Yeah, but because you have changed with the Dhamma. Yeah. It just, just makes like David was saying before, you know, and You've heard this. I know I teach I've taught teach this. I've taught this while you were part of our class, so I know you yeah. have, so But I like what David said earlier too, because it's like every the dynamic in the class is different every single time. Like yes. sometimes it's only three people or two people or ten or twenty, whatever, but yeah. we always, you know, we might repeat suttas, but each time, yeah, it doesn't matter. Something new out of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. David is right. 
you know, I don't like the fact that he's right so often, but he's right. We had a, we had a class, Saturday, um, it was just three of us, and so I didn't, I was going to do the second part, so I didn't, we just did a, a Terragatha poem, um, and it was, it was just a great class. In fact, I would say it was the best class we ever had. Yeah, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm on, I'm going to, I have the recording, but it's going to cost you folks. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Will you cheer up? Hello, Julia. Hey, everybody. What and again, class. nobody has to talk. You saw it, but if you like to, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I, what a wonderful class. I'm so happy I made it here. We are, too. Wow. Um, I, when you mentioned where your, where your focus goes, grows, I was, I felt like I was leaning towards um, focusing on nothingness because before I found this place, that's what I was yep. doing. Yep. And that's what started to slowly happen. And I didn't, like, yeah. not that I didn't feel human, but, like, I kind of felt worse because I'm like, huh, so I'm supposed to just feel nothing and just observe everything. Yep. That's, yeah, that's really a, what I thought. That's that's yeah. how that's taught. It is. And it's it's not healthy for a lot of people to do that oh and then it just sits in me yeah, yeah. um but laura and our lord Keith, julia you 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 guys we all helped but again remember that you were able to see this and recognize that something wasn't right i mean you had that you had that intuition at least and you came to this so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah uh that's all i have but what a wonderful teaching it is a lot. I gotta yeah. sit with it. It is, right? but again, it, sit with it, and, but also remember that as you keep coming to class, Saturday's class is gonna be the end of this, the third part, and then next Tuesday's class that Ram is gonna teach is on. Well, not, maybe it's not next Tuesday. Yeah. Next Tuesday's is it? Next Tuesday's class also relates to jhana meditation and will deepen your understanding of it because because of what you built in this class and each and every class. And next time, in six months from now or three months from now, when you hear this sutta again, it's going to have more meaning for you. Just like Mary, Mary, you've heard this mm-hmm. 15, 20 times at least. Mm-hmm. Most, you know, David and, and Rama have as, have as well, and probably Brett. And, there, oh, and every time I teach it, I see something else to emphasize. Why? Because the Sangha is at a certain point to emphasize it. In the beginning, when we didn't have a lot of structured studies and classes were a little different, as the Sangha developed, I would most of my teaching was to a sutta that related to how the Sangha was in that moment, what kind of what they might have been even struggling with. But as the Sangha grew, I was able to start teaching these structured studies because we have a foundation that can hold that. You know, well, and it works for all of you, doesn't like it? What's that? The Buddha gave the message that he felt the Sangha yeah. needed. Yeah. And so we're, we're teaching and practicing the Dhamma as close as possible to the methods that the Buddha taught, not just the Dhamma, the way that he taught it and the way that they lived it within the Sangha. And again, it just seems to work. Um, right, Dhamma teacher Mary? Thank you, Julian. I'm not a teacher yet, but... Almost. Um, well, we'll, almost. we'll see. Maybe not. I don't know if I want you. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been yelling at Mary that she better <laughs> do something about this not teaching. Um... I, I guess just a lot. So shortly, put more succinctly, um, you know that there's different 
like even to say stages isn't right. You are where you are when you are there, right? And there are times that things like wise restraint is the most important thing because that's where you're at and you need yeah. that wise restraint yeah. to remove yourself from something, you know. Um, but later on, it might be something else because you've evolved beyond the wiser state. Yep. And that's what you have to look forward to is then, I imagine that going from, you know, tools to survive in difficult situations to full human maturity um, is, you know, where you might be in a difficult situation that you were 10 years ago, but the only thing that comes out of you is love and kindness toward yeah. the other person. So yeah. that, Again, that's, that's, that's just it. Worth being, uh, um, this is really an unfair question to ask a mother, and, if, and please say no comment. But how, how, how has it been uh, practicing this with one or both of your daughters? knowing Because you just described something that might have been a, a, an issue, if I can put it that way, and now it's not. Now you see... You see it just as your 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 daughter's dukkha. Mm, nope, I think you might be meaning into something. Um, <laughs> I think our daughters... Because this would be the most... I, to me, this is the, the challenge of the Dhamma, isn't it? To not I make with your own children. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I got in two planes, airlines I never even heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> Having faith, you know. Um, but that was my ignorance because they're perfectly fine airlines. I just had never heard of them before. Um, <laughs> but um, I think for our children, um, you know, they definitely see the calm. And it definitely has an influence on them. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt. Grace was reading Siddhartha on the way wow. over. And, I read it uh, at her age. I and did. they're very, you know, but they're on their own journey, though. Yeah. They can't be on our journey. Yeah, they should One of be. the things... Not take up too much time, but one of the things you realize on a trip like that is I mean, this might sound silly for people further down the road with their children than I am, but um, that there's a big difference. Like, you think you've held them in here for their yeah. whole life and you've passed on all your wisdom, and then you expect to recognize them. But <laughs> yeah. in the lives that they've lived since 97 and 99, a lot has happened in the world, and those have left imprints on them, you yep. know, so there are things they say, almost like listening to my father talk to my mm. oldest brother, when it was, you know, fighting about long hair, why would a man yeah. want to wear his hair long, you know, my father's struggling with that, right, and, but I almost felt like that at certain times on the trip that mm -hmm. my, I'm just as distant, my experience is completely different than their experience, yeah, I didn't, recognize and that. I didn't expect that. Yeah. I just expected us to all be coming from the same pile and and viewing the world similarly and all sorts of naive things. And do you, but, and do you hear sometimes well, your your mother's voice coming out of your mouth? Well, yeah, I've always said that. Oh, I, well, I've always said can that. I say that? But she I, was right about everything. That you're again. <laughs> I, I I don't have a lot of experience mothering, so um, that that was your own. Um, uh, it, Diminishing, diminishing the eye making that is naturally present in motherhood. Oh, there was no room for that. Yeah, at all. Yeah, 
I'm driving us to the beaches on the coast of Texas. But, but again, you see it. This is her asking for the keys. Mm. I was like, okay. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. There was no eye making in it. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. And that, again, it's worth the price of admission. Isn't and it is. It is to develop an adult relationship with your children yeah. when they're in their young 20s. Yeah. I never, honestly, I was just, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not being silly. I never was able to develop an adult relationship with my parents because they weren't. They were wonderful people. They really were. Mm-hmm. And I, when it, you, I, you, you see how I get what I think about them often. They just, they were, just really good and great human. You should, you should. Everybody should think mm-hmm. this way about their parents. And I think that way about my parents. And they weren't perfect, but you know. Right. But I, but they sure weren't mature. You know, I remember talking to my mother. I couldn't talk to her then, but before she, she died of Alzheimer's and other things, so I couldn't talk to her at the end. But you know, she was terrified of dying of losing this and she just she mm-hmm. could never and to me understanding death is kind of a defining characteristic of maturity you would think mm-hmm. and even my father um, to me it was an immature view because he even though he was he lived to 101 and the last 10 years weren't great but he was obviously hanging on to keep going and I remember telling him you know why don't you go you're not having any fun and he said well I don't want to go I don't want to get kind of mad and he said but I can't wait to see your mother again now, again, to me, I hope I hope he doesn't have a thought after he's dead because I don't want him to not see my mother. You know, I mean, I remember, so full human maturity is what we're after. So we don't have those kind of things. And maybe when we die, we see everybody that we ever loved. Wouldn't that be great? But I don't want to spend the rest of my life hoping for that. Preparing for it, right? Yeah. Right. Right. If it comes, great. Right. And if I happen, like they told me, if I'm really good, I get to sit on the right hand of God for all eternity. And that one thought scared the hell out of me. But, I mean, to me, that, imagine sitting next to one guy mm-hmm. for eternity. I don't want to do it. Again, I'm being silly. But the point is, we gain maturity. We understand all these things, and we don't have to fight with it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you you to keep me going so long. Now I'm going to teach you, Dave. So what's this practice look like? I don't know. I don't know. Like? I'm sorry. You can look at your daughters and just see them. It's just that, and it's just that gentle. It's, it's love, love without conditions, <laughs> finally. Finally, yeah. Finally, I, mean, right. I always wanted to be able to love unconditionally, but I never could. You know, I used to love so much that I took a lot of hostages with my love. Now I teach you wrong. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. That's, that's an interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm still right in the middle of, of parenting. <laughs> and, um, and how, how, what do you, how are your kids with four and five now? <laughs> 34. <laughs> yeah. um, but I do remember both my parents um, having quite a graceful exit in life. Nice. Um, my dad got cancer quite young, 64. Um, and those last six months, when he knew that he was dying, uh, were probably the most meaningful uh, right. months in his life. Yeah, not uh, for him. But, yeah, but some people get so cold, full of fear and anger that they can't right. have that. And he was just, you know, he, he spent a lot of time in fear before that, 
but when 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 the kind of the verdict came down, no, no. Um, he it was like, oh, okay, and you know they they gave him a, a certain degree of comfort, yeah. and um, I remember uh, visiting him, and he was just putting a, a little tachometer on his on his bicycle so he could go for rides. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm laughing because it it sounds like he was finally in his life. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was quite, quite amazing. Um, I had a hard time dealing with it at that time uh, because of where I was at that time. Yeah. But I, I now realize that um, he had a he had quite a, a, a mature exit, and, and my mom was kind of the same way. She was quite a bit older. She was just about ninety. Did they did they practice any religion? Um, they were both raised Catholic, um, but they were Dutch Catholics, and they're they're pretty rowdy. That's yeah, um, not that's not quite, not quite Roman. Yeah, no, no. The, the 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 standard expression in Holland for Dutch Catholics is the, the closer to Rome, the farther from Rome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he uh, and, and she was and she was like that, and I I kind of. Uh, feel that I got my that that irreverent spirit from her. Um, she just you know refused to take any of these these uh, priests and, and, and prelates for, for seriously. <laughs> for her, um, you know, and and she she didn't have much of, a, of an education, but she had that spirit. Yeah. Um, so that was wonderful. Um, and in a way, I think that still has um, that has colored my my, my parenting. Uh, as as uh, you know, at times it's been difficult, and at this point, it's not easy. Um, but at least this practice has <coughs> allowed me to to um, to accept it for for what it is. Is your relationship with your kids more meaningful now? Well, he lives with his. So I know. That's yeah. Um, <laughs> that's hard. The little so and so. It's just different every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's. Um, I. And it. This. The challenge is to to not wanting to it to be any different. And your kids and to be any different. That's the big challenge. And, uh, and that can be quite a challenge, not not the one that be any different. But on the other hand, you know, every time I look at this through like a, a Dharma eye, I realize that it's just life going on. And, you know, we're, this is not a disaster. Yeah, that's, some that's people, right. Yeah, just... Some people in my family might think it's a disaster. <laughs> maybe they, they themselves think it's a disaster. I don't think it's a disaster. Yeah. I think it's just what happens now. And if we find, we find a different way of doing things, we'll do that. That's right. right now, and it's just like that. It's just what's occurring. Yeah. And there's always uncertainty. That's an aspect of impermanence. So you never know. How, whatever great job I'm sure you all did with your kids, yeah. you still don't know. There were you know? times where I didn't even know if they would survive. Yeah, I mean, my parents, were they really were great parents. They were, you know, the Ozzie and Harriet parents. And mm -hmm. look at me. I mean, I was... You know, I, I was on a path that I was probably going to kill somebody at some point or, or die an early death from mm -hmm. all that. Yeah. They didn't raise me that way. They didn't want me to. Right. They raised five yeah. other kids that were perfect little angels. Well, go back to the point. My son was, was in that phase at, at some point. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, can I, can I, is this, do I need, do I want this to be any different than it is? 
Yeah, um, and you well, can. Yeah, I, I want him to be safe. I want him to survive this this phase in his life. Um, but apart from that, um, he's going to have to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And now you're calm and at peace with it. Once in a while. Most of the time. Except that I'm not. Worth the price of admission. Yes, absolutely. To be present for this moment. Without the Dharma, I'd be a wreck. Yeah, and it's not because everything's better now. It's everything's better. Now, how's that? that for Really something. Well, okay, we'll continue this this sutta on Saturday, part three. Um, I'll get, I put part one up, so if you haven't heard it, you could, and I'll get this up uh, sometime tomorrow. Um, we have our picnic that Laura has done so great, such a great job on. Um, so please join us uh, Sunday at four o'clock at Lake Nakamixon. Info in the in the email. And there is a chance that there's going to be a hurricane up here up the coast this weekend. And in which case, we're it's you know it's hurricane or shine. So bring put a lot of rocks in your boots and stuff like that. So, you know. No, what? Well, if, 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 it, if it's poor weather, I think we're going to have it the next Sunday or we're going to yeah, go and hang out in the rain. It'd be fun too. Okay. If it's a bad day, we're, if it's a rainy day, we'll just have it the next, which is September 11th. Do we have a birthday cake is the question. Oh, wait, wait, that's, wait, 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 wait. I, oh, no, I got to know the answer to that at least. No. If there ain't no cake, I can't come. <laughs> Don't worry, it's going to be nice chocolate. But. Okay, let, let's, I, it's getting late. Let's finish. Oh, yeah. Thank you all for, uh, I, I really appreciate you, you allow me to get into the absurd because it's really a good look at life. At times. We'll finish with, with uh, Surprise. I had 40 years, that's right. I never had a 40th birthday and I deserve one. I don't care if it's at 67 or not. I was going to say, it's your 20-something 40th birthday. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> well, I, in my mind, because I have these great powers of concentration, it's my 40th birthday. There you go. Uh, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta, loving-kindness, from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart she would cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, 
being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. See you all soon. John, I'll uh, email or text you about catching up. Okay, yeah, anytime. Just let me know. Yeah, like I said, I'll be... By, I'll, I'll be traveling Saturday through Thursday, but I'll, I'll try to find you before that. All right. Yeah, I'm around. All right. Thanks. thanks we'll see you guys. Bye. Yep. Good night. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.